the Beatles had this charm, John, Paul and George, and probably then Stuart and Pete had this charm when things weren't going well, which in their world wasn't very often because mostly it was an upward trajectory, but nonetheless, sometimes you know, they would have a bad night or the gig would, you know, didn't work properly or the amps broke or whatever. I say, where are we going, fellas? And they'd go, to the top, Johnny. And I'd say, where's that, fellas? And they say, to the topmost of the poppermost. And I'd say, right. And we'd all sort of cheer up. Now then, boys, where are we going? To the top, Bry. Where's that? To the toppermost of the poppermost. Welcome to spring, everybody. Spring is sprung. We're here in April of 1963. This is toppermost of the poppermost. I'm Ed Chen. I'm Kid O'Toole. And I'm Martin Quibell. So we're looking back 60 years at what was going on on the British and American charts. 60 years ago, April of 1963, on the British charts was the rise of For Me To You. There are a few Beatles singles on the charts by this point, but For Me To You is one we're going to be focusing on a lot in this episode. Very interesting single. I think Martin's going to say a lot about it, that it's a kind of a leap for them in sophistication. Well, okay, you know, let's start with what the Beatles were thinking at the time, you know, Please Please Me was a hit single, and they were looking to write their next single, and they had pretty much already settled on Thank You, Girl. Take one. Okay. <coughs> Come on. Thank you, girl. There's a story, isn't there, of Helen Shapiro being played two songs and they were working on From Me To You and they thought that Thank You, Girl was the hit, but she preferred From Me To You. You can kind of hear that Thank You, Girl is in the mold of Please Please Me and Love Me Do. It's the you, Me, You, I song. Paul has said in interviews that that was an early trick of theirs, that they wanted to write songs that either directly addressed the listener or was very personal, you know, and, and I think that was pretty smart in the early years because I think that did establish kind of a direct connection to the listener. So I think that did help draw in fans and let's face it, the girls. (laughs) Well, and you can also see that they were to a certain extent already growing tired of the formula. Thank you, girl follows that formula, the harmonies, the harmonica, the chord structure, all the way down. And it's like, oh, okay, it's it's another one of those. That's what pulls me. When I was looking at the song, you can see with From Me To You a big change in the way that they would write songs. I mean, it's quite advanced melodically and harmonically. You've got a pretty standard verse or main part of the section that's in C major for the all the way through but then when you come to the bridge i was saying before Andy, both that to me it's got almost a feel of like a classic cole porter or george gershwin feel with the when it suddenly goes from c major to the f major with that fantastic g minor chord to open it and then having an augmented chord to finish it all off and then 
come back to the main body is just wow that just floored me must have really surprised everybody when that song came out and had that change from me to you i remember being very pleased with the middle eight because it was a sort of strange chord in it and i got arms along oh, it sort of goes to a minor and we thought that was that was very big step. It was like, ooh, you know, this is something we hadn't done before. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think it's that middle eight that sends the song into a completely different direction. Paul said in the Complete Beatles recording sessions that middle eight was a very big departure for us. Say you're in C, then go to A minor, fairly ordinary. C, yeah. change it to G, and then F. You know, yeah. that's the usual. But then... As you just pointed out, you know, they when that go starts going into I got arms and then G minor, you know, yeah. then going to G minor and C, as he put it, takes you to a whole new world. It was exciting. And absolutely. I mean, it's it, it goes into a direction that particularly for that time and, and in pop music, you wouldn't expect. Well, and Paul certainly even recognized that as early as 1964, when he was talking about the song, you know, he said that... Uh, From me to you, you know, it could be done as a sort of a ragtime tune, especially the middle eight. And, and so, you know, we're not writing the tunes in any particular idiom. So, in fact, uh, in five years' time, we may arrange the tunes differently, but we probably write the same on rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Good old Paul. <laughs> okay, so the, the origin of the tune was actually when they were on the Helen Shapiro tour, although both Paul and John have scrambled their memory a little bit and occasionally said that it was written on the Roy Orbison tour, which was, well, after they recorded it. Oops. But in, in Anthology, they have a, an interview with John where he said that For Me to You was written traveling from York to Shrewsbury. We weren't taking ourselves seriously just fooling around on the guitar when we began to get a good melody line and we really started to work at it. Before that journey was over, we'd completed the lyric, everything. I think the first line was mine. I mean, I know it was mine. And then after that, we took it from there. It was far bluesier than that when we wrote it. But that was a combination right written song. It was not a song, you know, written individually. It was created together. Why singing why into each other's nose. Band, we were on tour. What puzzled us was why we thought of a name like For Me To You. It had me thinking when I picked up the NME to see how we were doing in the charts. There you go. The Beatles looking at how they were doing in the charts. Yep. Then yeah. I realized we got the inspiration from reading a copy on the coach. Paul and I had been talking about one of the letters in the From Us To You column. Yet more evidence, as you just pointed out, that they were very much paying attention. I think not only to how... They were themselves doing on the charts, but also, you know, what was going on in the charts in general. I mean, they were clearly avid readers of NME, weren't they? For sure. Mm -hmm. and, and then, of course, they would then take that name and in some of the intervening radio shows that they would have in 64, they would call them From Us to You. <laughs> exactly. It's the Beatles. So that then leads into 
uh, what Martin had mentioned earlier, that they'd finished, or at least mostly finished, for me to you, and they went up to Helen Shapiro and said, well, we've got two songs. You know, we've got the one that we're kind of thinking we're, we want as a single, and we've got this new one. Which do you like better? Imagine being Helen Shapiro and having them bring these songs to you. That's amazing. You hear Peter Asher telling all these great stories about, oh, well, John and Paul would go downstairs and be on the piano. And here's another one of them. So what Helen said was, we crowded around a piano and Paul played while the two of them sang their latest composition. One was Thank You, Girl, and the other was For Me to You, which was the one I liked best. Well, uh, but, wow! <laughs> private, <laughs> private concert from John and Paul. Them, both sides of their new single. I mean, yeah. Incre- yeah. incredible. To have been a fly on the wall. I'm wondering if they would have played both songs to say George Martin and George would have said, look, From Me to You has to be the A-side. We don't know whether George Martin had already told them that Thank You Girl was going to be the next single. That's entirely possible as well. And then, then they came into the studio and played for me. You and, Oh, well, that's much better. We don't have that information. I don't think they would have come in and said, this is going to be our next single. This is, well, here's, here, here's the next song we've written. It's coming along the line. What do you think, George? Oh, yeah, I quite like that. That, would, that could be a single. It sort of works going from me to you next because was it yourself or was it Kit that was saying before in the previous episode that it's like a rise in their early singles. There's there's like something different each time. So you had Love Me Do and then when you went from Love Me Do to Please Please Me, that's a whole other level up. So this is another level up from Please Please Me as opposed to Thank You Girl, which you've hinted at is similar in arrangement and style to Please Please Me. Everybody would have recognized at the time, yeah, this is definitely the next step that you want to take. Well, maybe everybody except Kenny Lynch. Yeah, Kenny apparently was uh, not a fan. (laughs) Paul and John were writing songs on the back of the bus during a tour, and that Kenny would go to the back of the bus and decided he would help them write a song. After about a half hour, nothing seemed to be coming from the back, and I just love this. He rushed to the front of the bus and shouted, well, that's it. I'm not going to write any more of that bloody rubbish with those idiots. They don't know the music from their backsides. That's it. No more help from me. And the song they were writing at the time? From me to you. I guess Kenny and Paul made up since Kenny Lynch did show up on the band on the run cover. Exactly. So they clearly made nice. But yeah, I guess Kenny was not a fan of the song initially. (laughs) Wow. That is for me, you. And as we're going to see, that would make its way pretty high up into the charts. And a lot of it do, as Martin pointed out, to that bridge. Next, we, we want to talk about some of the features that were going on in the charts. Not so much the records themselves, although we'll talk a little bit about the records themselves. There are a couple of trends that were going on that are worth bringing up. There are two records on the American charts that come from Atlantic. It's hard to understate how important Atlantic was at this point. And I'm sure people are familiar with the story, but Ahmet Erdogan was the co-founder of the label, and Herb uh, Abramson was the founder uh, in 1947. And when he had to go into the service in the 60s, then Jerry Wexler 
joined the label, who had been a writer uh, with Billboard before that. And they became such a force in R&B and the blues, although it was a kind of a different sound. I mean, it was definitely rhythm and blues, but it was kind of a crossover sound. One of the biggest artists on Atlantic, of course, was Ray Charles. You get a really good look at these two Jewish white guys coming up to Ray Charles in the Ray film. It's like, wow, that really happened? And well, I mean, well, probably not exactly like is represented. That's mm-hmm. something. Exactly. And also, a couple of songwriters would play a major role in Atlantic, Lieber and Stoller. They would join up and write so many incredible hits for the Drifters and so many other artists. And as we go through the charts in this episode, we're going to see many Atlantic artists, Ray Charles being one of them, Salman Burke is another one, and Barbara Lewis, great, great singer. That just shows you what an impact that Atlantic was having at this time it was rhythm and blues, but it was a smoother rhythm and blues sound, you know, with maybe with a little bit of a pop sheen to it. And as I said, Atlantic, it lasted so long. <laughs> the coasters, the drifters, the shadows, Benny King, Booker T and the MGs, Doris Troy and Otis Redding. They're, yep. they're the Hall of Fame all by itself. Exactly. And then, of course, we're not going to be covering it for a while, but as the 60s went on, I mean, Aretha Franklin became the face of Atlantic later on. And then Led Zeppelin, the Bee Gees. uh, Yes. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. I mean, they became just a gigantic organically important labels. So as we go through the charts in this episode, you're going to see this label popping up at various points. So interesting to see the emergence of the label. The label and Amit would have a significant role in Beatles and solo Beatles history as things go on. I mean, of course, uh, Eric Clapton would end up on Atlantic. Indeed, as did Julian Lennon. Julian Lennon was picked by Amit to be on Atlantic. In addition to that, as we now know from Jay Bergen's incredible book, John Lennon and Morris Levy first encountered each other at Club Caviero, and the reason they were both there is they had been at a dinner honoring Amit Erdogan. Yep, that's right. And really, if it weren't for this label, a lot of artists like Ray Charles may not have gotten the airplay that they did. Because at the time, he was with a smaller label and was not getting the exposure that he obviously deserved. You can't overstate how important this label was in music. Well, briefly close with one of our collective favorite stories about Amit. Um, in 1980, as John Lennon was recording Double Fantasy, you know, he was on the lookout for what label is going to release this. So one day, he was in the studio, and unannounced, Amit Erdogan walks into the record plant. <laughs> no biggie. Yeah, no biggie. <laughs> so Amit was like, I'm big. They'll take one look at me and think, yeah, we're going to sign with him. So he breezes right past security and he walks into the studio and John Lennon turns around and looks at him kind of with this, what do you want expression on his face? <laughs> <laughs> and apparently then asks security <laughs> to escort him out. <laughs> 
that's the way the story's told. We don't know 100% whether it's truthful, but we do know that he certainly uh, went and tried and did probably succeed in seeing John Lennon. And we also know that he left pretty quickly. Yep. That's pretty nervy to ask Ahmed Erdogan (laughs) to get call security on him to leave or to just say, get out of here. I mean, wow. Only John Lennon could do something like that. (laughs) Well, maybe not only John Lennon, but John Lennon is certainly one of the people who would have uh, the balls to do that. (laughs) That's right. I mean, to say he was powerful is putting it mildly. All right, and you wanted to talk about a couple of other songs that formed a, kind of a mini trend that was on the charts. Yes, you know, we've been talking in a couple of uh, past episodes about how Latin music really took a hold of the charts at this time, and we're going to see this again. There are two songs, one on the UK charts, one on the US charts, represent the beginning of this trend. The songs are Watermelon Man by the Mongo Santa Maria Band. other one is El Watusi by Ray Barreto. Some may be familiar with these songs. Watermelon Man, yes, that is the Herbie Hancock song that he wrote and recorded that same year, although many may be more familiar with his re-recording of it from his landmark Headhunters album in the 70s, which has a much funkier sound to it. When I played for my first time with a Latin group, and Mongo Santa Maria, great Cuban uh, uh, conga, conguero that passed away quite a few years ago. They were having a conversation about relationship between Afro-Cuban and Afro-American music. And, I, and Mongo had said that he never found a thing that was really the link between the two. So I'm half hearing the conversation and, and finally Donald says, hey Herbie, why don't you play Watermelon Man for Mongo? You know, so I went up on the, on the piano and I started playing. And I started playing this, and little by little, the musicians started picking it up. Pretty soon, everybody was dancing. Mongo got on his congas. When he got on his congas, all of a sudden, something clicked. And uh, he, he said, it's a, it's a Wahira uh, beat, you know, and, uh, and it, it worked with Watermelon Man perfectly. And so, you and, know, now uh, we'd call it world music, but I mean, it was just a spontaneous, yeah. a spontaneous so it became beat. a yeah. huge hit, you know, not only here in the States, but, but all over Latin America, too. These two songs are representative of kind of a relatively short-lived trend in the um, 60s, lasted until about the end of the 60s, called Boogaloo. And I know with fellow Gen Xers, you're thinking, you know, Boogaloo, like as in breakdancing and, uh, you know, the break-in movies. No, no, this has nothing to do with that. 
This is a trend that you know had its roots in the 50s. In the 50s and 60s, African Americans listened to a lot of different styles of music, you know, jump, blues, R&B, doo-wop, of course, the foundations of rock, and Latinos in New York City shared a lot of these tastes, but they also listened to the mambo and cha-cha-cha. And there was a mixing of Puerto Ricans, Cubans, African-Americans, and others in clubs in New York. And so the bands tried to find a common ground with all these different cultures. And Boogaloo emerged from this. And now I'm only 82, and all I want to do is Boogaloo. Boogaloo. There you go. go. (laughs) Another way you've heard the term. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) <laughs> and so Boogaloo came out of these clubs and it was a you know a combination of all these different sounds and it started to emerge out of that. Now, these two songs, Watermelon Man and Owatusi, were really the first songs where Boogaloo became mainstream. But it would not be the first time that Boogaloo would reach the charts and I think Some of you will recognize other tracks that we will see later on. The biggest Boogaloo hit of the 60s was called Bang Bang by the Joe Cuba Sextet. You may not know it by the title. Believe me, you've heard it. I think it's been sampled. The other one has definitely been sampled. I Like It Like That by Pete Rodriguez. I'm sure you never thought I'd bring up this name on this podcast, but Cardi B... (laughs) (laughs) did a song in 2018 called I Like It Like That, and she sampled that song. (laughs) So Boogaloo lives on. And by the late 60s, these clubs had kind of faded, and the sound transitioned into salsa. And salsa kind of took over in the 70s. And Ray Barreto, who did El Watusi, became one of the major figures in salsa. But this was sort of the precursor to that. Uh, Tito Puente, who I'm sure many of you are familiar with, he played Boogaloo before he played salsa. So these two records were the beginning of this trend. So it's just another example, as we've seen in previous episodes, of how Latin music was so popular during the early 60s, during this period. So do check these records out. They're a lot of fun, and it just shows you how many artists picked up on this Latin trend and were trying to incorporate it. All right, for the last time, here is our ad from the Magical Mystery Camp. This is the fourth time you've heard. Have you heard the Fab Faux announced the debut of Magical Mystery Camp, partnering with RPM's Music School and Music Masters Collective. The Fab Faux, including Will Lee, Joan Osborne, John Sebastian, Marshall Crenshaw, and a great group of faculty for three days and nights in celebration of music of the Beatles at this special event. This all-inclusive, once-in-a-lifetime music vacation experience in the heart of the Catskills will be packed with nightly performances, workshops, speakers, song circles, open mics, and so much more. If you're a performing musician at any level, bring your instrument. If you're a music lover, bring your good spirit. It's an amazing experience for individuals, friends, and couples alike. Registration is open, and spots are already filling up. So register soon. We're in April. We're coming up on this event. 
as far as I know, it has not sold out yet, but it's got to be getting pretty close. So if you're interested, get there as soon as you can. Definitely. Sounds like it really will be a once-in-a-lifetime event, so don't miss it. We move on to the British charts in April of 1963. We start with the first week in April, the 4th of April. At number one was Summer Holiday from Cliff Richard, a song we've talked about before. From the movie. And then at number two was How Do You Do It, our feature from last month. Jerry and the Pacemakers still keeping it going. Absolutely. And I like their version, too. They do capture the pop spirit of the song. I think they absolutely do a great version of it as well as the Beatles. Okay. At number five is our old friend Billy Fury with Like I've Never Been Gone. As I go through month by month and listen to the different sort of songs from these artists, it's really interesting that you can actually see what Paul McCartney and what George Barton talk about, they really did just sort of come to a formula and stick to it. Yep, absolutely. Billy Fury definitely was following the Elvis kind of sound. I mean, no doubt about it. <laughs> well, a, a lot of British acts were, weren't they? I'll feel your tender kisses Before I go to sleep I'll feel your arms around me Just Promise me you'll keep all your love and your kisses until I come home. And then it will be like I've never been gone. This song in particular has a little bit of a Latin sound to it. Back to Latin. And this was in the new record Mirror. They described it as a semi-bluesy, semi-ballady thing with a good tune and especially good lyric. And yes, they called it powerful Presley-type vocalizing from Billy. This could be a really big one. I don't think it's all that great a tune, and I don't think yeah. that's the lyric, to be honest. Yeah, it didn't really grab me that much. I mean, he's a good vocalist. I'm not saying he isn't. But, you know, I can kind of see, and I'm sorry if I'm offending any Billy Fury fans out there, but I can kind of see why he wasn't as big in the States. Because, I mean, he does. He sounds like Elvis. But not nearly as good. Yeah. I mean, I hate to say it. Sorry, Billy Fury fans. <laughs> I'm really sorry. Don't no tomatoes. <laughs> All right. Uh, at number nine, a song we talked about last time, it's, it's Buddy Holly's Brown-Eyed Handsome Man. I wanted to bring it up again because in the intervening month, we have uncovered the original version from Clovis, New Mexico. You, we were talking about Buddy's lead vocal. You can really hear it on the original you can see exactly what they did when they did the overdubbing, and it, it really doesn't help the record any. No. And then at number 10, Joe Brown, That's What Love Will Do. That yellow dress she wore when we went dancing Sunday nights. That smile you give me the movies when they dim the lights I've tried in vain to wash the memory from my brain. I can't forget you and that's what love will at this point in time, Joe Brown was the one that George Harrison was looking up to. That's yeah. who George Harrison wanted to be. Yeah, well, and I can see, I mean, definitely incredible guitarist. I mean, he was, is, uh, a, a gifted, gifted guitarist. 
but but also had a voice that had more to it than just a single sort of feel to it. He could do the the rockier stuff and the softer stuff as well, even back then. Well, I mean, you know, we talk about Billy Fury. Joe Brown had a better voice, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So. I agree. All right, at number eleven, there's "Please Please Me." So it's starting its long fall off the chart, but it's still just outside of the top ten. Then we get two songs from the Springfield. Islander Dreams and Say I Won't Be There. That's Dusty Springfield and her brother. Absolutely fascinating. You know, one of the things I love about doing our show is learning about groups like this. I mean, and and learning about artists that are new to us, us Americans anyway. The sound is just so different from what we're used to from Dusty Springfield. Like Island of Dreams, for example, I mean, it has such a country kind of vibe to it, and Dusty can handle it. I think her voice sounds terrific. We tend to think of her as blue-eyed soul, but she can, you know, sing country as well. Just shows what a versatile artist she was. Well, it goes to show what we have kind of always talked about with the Beatles is that they were listening to everything and they would attempt anything. Right. Exactly. Yeah, that's a very good point that they had such diversity on the charts. And as you said, would emulate it and could emulate it pretty well. Then at number 36 was Watermelon Man, which we spoke of at the top of the show. Mm-hmm. Exactly. This was a Ramon Mongo Santa Maria Rodriguez, who was a conga player from Cuba, and he played until he retired in the late 90s and was quite a pivotal figure. He transitioned into salsa in the 70s and was a member of the Fania All-Stars, uh, mm. which were a you know, leading group of salsa musicians. But this was one of his earliest hits. So, important record. And then at number 50, Dwayne Eddy with Boss Guitar. It's got a good beat and you can dance to it. That's, right. <laughs> That's the quote. I agree. This is a great record. Uh, just showed how ahead of his time Dwayne Eddy was and how he could play the bass strings to produce that twangy sound. Just so unique. It's a great record. Listen to the man play the boss guitar. Listen to the man play the boss guitar. If someone wanted to know who is Dwayne Eddy, you could play this to them and it says it just in one song. It's got the best bits of Dwayne in there along with those other songs as well, you know, the the classic ones. That is so right. I mean, you, you as soon as this starts playing, you're like, that's Dwayne Eddy. Yeah. I mean, no doubt about it. You know, that's his sound. So good point. All right, so we move on to the second week of uh, April 1963. Uh, How Do You Do It has made its way to number one now. Yep. Again, please, please be still there in the top 20. At number 17. You're sweet as the flower. 
flowers in the springtime Fair as the roses that twine You're sure to be somebody's darling Be nobody's darling but Number 30, Nobody's Darling But Mine, good old Frank. Our buddy, Frank Ifield. Yeah. Frank, where have you been? <laughs> but please, please be still ahead of him in the charts this week. So <laughs> Paul can shake his fist at Frank for this week. Now, here's something interesting about this song. I found out the writer of Nobody's Darling was Jimmy Davis. And he also wrote You Are My Sunshine. That's a pretty big song. That's a classic. And went on to serve as governor of Louisiana uh, (laughs) from 1944 to 48, and then again from 1960 to 64. I just thought, fascinating. I wonder who was doing A&R for Frank. Who was choosing the songs that he was singing? I don't think he was doing it. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure who chose the songs. At number 45, we've got the group that the Beatles might have become had Decca actually decided to keep them. The big three with some other guy on Decca. I still well, wish the Beatles had recorded that because their version yes. is great. Love it. This version is okay. I mean, the, the big three themselves were not all that happy with Decca putting out this version of the tune. They wanted that's, to be recorded. And, well, yeah, that's what I heard, that they were yeah not happy with this version, thought they could have done a better job. You hear John Lennon always talk about, oh, you know, Brian was the one who tamed us. The big three refused to be tamed. Brian was their manager, but they said no to the suits. Yep, you think that was their mistake then, Ed? Decca said yes to the big three, so it's like, well, okay. It's not a bad version of some other guy, but it's it's far from the best. Yeah. I mean, the original certainly beats it by a mile. The Beatles version beats it by 10 miles. Exactly. Yeah. I think it's a bit tame, this version, to say, put it lightly. I agree. Too slow. The things between Brian and the big three got so bad that a couple of months later, they would split from Brian. Why would anyone willingly split from Brian Epstein in the middle of 1963? May not have been the smartest move. That's true. Some other guy was co-written with Richie Barrett and Lieber and Stoller. Yep. Mm. And, of course, incredible songwriters. The original version featured an electric piano prominently, which was kind of an unusual sound at the time. It's the what did I say thing. John Lennon would frequently say that that was part of that whole cycle and that the Beatles themselves would frequently go back to imitating that sound. I feel fine. Exactly. But I agree. I think that the Beatles version greatly surpassed it. And I agree, Martin, the Beatles should have done a formal recording of it. I absolutely love this song. And in a nod to the live recording, we have seen, you know, the rare footage of them at the cavern. We want Pete! We want Pete! (laughs) The interesting thing about that is that one of the drummers they considered along with Ringo was the drummer from the Big Three. Yep, everything's connected. That all goes back to the Larry Parnes talent show where every group in Liverpool showed up and the Beatles were 
the least likely to actually get a spot. The big three actually did a better job on that audition than the Beatles did. Wow. And then at number 49, it's a song we've already seen on the American charts, He's So Fine by the Chiffons. Now said. (laughs) No comment. You, You quoted Stan Lee there. You know, I guess one person can make a difference. Enough said. No doubt about it, George heard it. George knew what the song sounded like. Yes, indeed. We move on to the big week. The 18th of April, 1963. How Do You Do It was still number one. Mm -hmm. So Please Please Me had now just fallen out of the top 20 at number 22. But right underneath it, at number 23, the new Beatles single, From Me to You. Mm -hmm. And that's where it debuted. You know, that's that's really pretty amazing. Wow. Boy, that it debuted there. Then at number 37, we still had the big three with some of the guys. So Brian Epstein acts were four of the top 40. Wow. Jeez. So, you know, it's coming. Yeah. (laughs) The takeover is coming. At number 50 was a song that we've spoken of before, Do the Bird by the Vernon's Girls. But we do want to mention that one of the Vernon's Girls would go on to marry Joe Brown. Mm Mm-hmm. Again, everything's connected. So Vicky Brown would sing with George a lot. Shanghai Surprise, everyone thought that was George singing with Madonna. That was actually George and Vicky Brown. Yep, that's right. Yep. There's a big thing with it, with George and the Brown family, because, of course, you know, later on, George would sing with Vicky and Joe's daughter, Sam Brown. And Sam Brown sang Horse of the Water at the concert for George, right? Yep. Yeah, she, fantastic job. What a voice she had. All right, so we move to the last week of April, April the 25th. At number one was How Do You Do It? And moving up from number 23 all the way to number three was For Me to You. That's quite a leap. (laughs) Two weeks in the charts, it's at number three. Wow. You say that, yeah, How Do You Do It was number one and How Do You Do It had been number one, but you kind of look at the way the charts went. Yeah, the Beatles were the more popular band. Yeah, a few people like this song. (laughs) (laughs) Paul certainly liked the song I mean he bought it back he played it on tour That was one of the highlights of the more recent versions of the Paul McCartney tour. Absolutely. At number 31, Scarlett O'Hara by Jet Harrison, Tony Meehan. Now, I want to talk a little bit about Tony Meehan here. We've talked about him before, but we kind of missed out on the biggest connection between 
Tony and the Beatles. Yes, indeed. It's kind of an interesting story. John Lennon always claimed that Tony Meehan produced the DECA audition session, but current research suggests that this is probably not true. I tend to think that he might have been there, but I don't think he was actually producing the session. Producing it, right. No, I don't think Tony was at that point in his career where he was in that position at that point. I think he was just producing themselves at that time, so I don't think it was that big a thing with Decker at that point. He was certainly around, and he was in management at Decker, but he was also kind of a freelancer at the time. So just before George Martin comes onto the scene, Decca called Brian back down, and, and this is covered in Cellar Full of Noise. If you have your copy around, you can look it up. Mm-hmm. So he said, March 1962, I returned to Decca for a lunch appointment. I felt pessimistic, but tried not to show it when I met Beecher Stevens and Dick Rowe, two important executives. We had coffee, and Mr. Rowe, a short, plump man said to me, not to mince words, Mr. Epstein, we don't like your boy's sound. Of course, we all know this quote, groups of guitarists are on the way out. Brian continued, and, and he got a little bit mad and then said, you know, yeah. you, you guys are crazy. These boys are going to be bigger than Elvis. And of course, that was a quite a statement to make in March of 1962. Yeah. Yep, Exactly. We know the story. The men of DECA took me to a luncheon in another room in the company headquarters. Whether it was the well-being of a good meal or my ceaseless talk of the Beatles' potential, I don't know. But by the coffee stage, there was a tiny crack in their determination not to record the boys. I had paused in a long and probably overstated piece of sales talk, and the two men stared at each other. So the DECA solution to how are we going to get rid of Mr. Epstein is, oh, you pay us $100. We've got a producer who will produce your boys. We won't release the record, but we will produce the record and get it down on plastic, and you can take it around and find someone else to sell it. The name of that producer was one Tony Meehan. I have an idea that something might be done. You know who might help you? Tony Meehan. Yep. So the story picks up. The following day, I arrived at the DECA studios to meet Meehan. Dick Rowe was with him in the control room listening to a recording session, and he nodded to me. After 30 minutes, he introduced me to Meehan and said, Tony, take Mr. Epstein out and explain the position. We left the room and went into another where there were two chairs facing each other. The A&R man, who two years later I was to book as a drummer as one of my Prince of Wales bills, looked me straight between the eyes without enthusiasm and said, Mr. Epstein, Mr. Rowe and I are very busy men. We know roughly what you require. Will you fix a date for tapes to be made of these Beatles? Phone my secretary and make sure that when you want the session, I am available. So, you know, that's a little bit of a uh, Brian being um, eh, kind of... Yeah, we showed you, didn't we? <laughs> you're the one who turned down the Beatles, and now you're just a session drummer for me. Yeah, a little dig. For the third time in three months, I walked out of DECA with only the slightest whisper of hope. I was very upset, and I believed almost at the end of my extended tether. The date was arranged, but later abandoned because I felt that no useful purpose was served. I realized that there was nothing doing with DECA, and the rest is history. At number 38 was 
Two Kinds of Teardrops from Del Shannon. Not one of my favorites from Del. It's, it's better than some, but worse than others. There's two kinds of teardrops. one of my favorites either i mean he's you know he's such a great singer and yeah this is not one of his all-time best and it didn't do as well in the u.s peak number 50 on uh, the billboard hot 100 so it did better in in the uk we're easily pleased <laughs> okay. Hey, there were times you got it right and we didn't. <laughs> Quite a few, actually. Absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, look, Carol there's, King. Yeah. <laughs> there's for me to you shooting up the charts, and the Americans, we don't know what's going on. What's with these Beatles? Yeah. <laughs> You'll find out. <laughs> At number 40, still is the big three, some other guy. Again, you compare that to For Me to You, even you compare that to Love Me Do. We always talk about Love Me Do being a disappointing start. You look at the big three with some other guy, which is certainly an adequate record, if not, you know, chart topping, but mm-hmm. it can't do anything on the charts, not really. It's kind of just spinning its wheels at the mm-hmm. lower end of the top 40. Right. At number 47, uh, our other good friend, Helen Shapiro, who we talked about at the opening of the show with the Woe Is Me. Mm-hmm. I really like this record. No, never, no more. one case i think where as i just said we got it wrong i really like her voice i thought this was a fun track up tempo you know she has such a great husky voice that she has it's kind of a sassy track love the fuzz guitar break really interesting addition uh this was co-written by jackie DeShannon, by the way i just thought this was a fascinating track although as we've talked about in a way, Helen Shapiro was blessed with that voice and cursed with that voice because the voice didn't match the face. She wasn't 20 years old at that point, and it is a good song. It, the lyrics don't quite match up with the faster tempo, but, you know, okay. Mm-hmm. She just sounds so confident. Just a fun track. Yeah, I enjoyed it. It's got a vocal from before its time, in, in a sense. I mean, the vocal performance she does on this, it's almost got that feel of, two, three years later down the line. Maybe not to the degree of like an Aretha Franklin, but it's got that big sort of like range in there that that a lot of female singers around that time solo didn't have. She just had that really gutsy, strong vocal style. Mm. As I said, we missed the boat on her. We really did. All right, at number 48, My Way by Eddie Cochran. My notes here say, this was not the Sinatra tune. No. <laughs> Definitely not. This was a posthumous release. Eddie Cochran is, of course, Mr. 20 Flight Rock, and so he, he can be attributed to one of the reasons why John and Paul got together. Indeed. And, of course, Summertime Blues, gone way too soon. Great voice, good songwriter. And this is a good track. It's, it's a rockin' little track. I agree. I, I like this a lot. 
50 are good friends the Spotniks again with just listen to my heart written by Frank Ifield <laughs> really <laughs> yeah that's what I found wow our buddy the band who would give us Jimmy Nickel so This month, we're going to go into the cash box charts. Now, typically, when we're talking about the American charts, we're going to go with Billboard because, well, Billboard won. Billboard is the chart of record. But it's interesting to see what things were like on some of the other charts. The other thing is, you look at cash box, we tend to look at the whole issue of the magazine. And there are really some interesting other little bits in there. There's some fascinating commentary about commenting on trends like we like to do on this show there's an opening an introductory editorial at the front of each issue for this month you read through the four editorials they're all kind of saying why has the year been so bad why has 1963 been such a down year for the record industry how can we make it turn around let's do this let's do that it's almost like the story that we heard for all the years. You know, maybe we don't hear it quite as much these days, but they were writing that story right then and there. Exactly. It's interesting that, you know, one of the other editorials says that you have to take chances with some records. That one thing to make things turn around is go against trends. Sometimes I particularly loved the uh, one uh, thing they pointed out was one such theory that has existed for a number of years in our business is the one that emphatically and without a doubt states girls just don't sell. Yet a glance at the present day charts so thoroughly disproves this fact, in quotes, that it's hard to believe it was an industry-wide axiom in the first place. And they point out, he's so fine by the chiffon Skeeter Davis, who we talked about last time. Our day will come by Ruby and the Romantics. You know, we've talked about a lot of these records. Therefore, it must be noted that females can sell, do sell, and very well may be outselling the males at present. They also talk about 
the Latin craze and specifically mention Watermelon Man or El Watusi. When Latin material is rare or considered passe, that's the time to hit with either of those records. They mention others as well. So interesting to note that's another thing to sometimes you have to go against trends. Yeah, and, and we'll talk about at least briefly some of the edit, other editorials as we go through the charts. So we, you start with the week of April 6th, and as we were just discussing, right there at the head of the charts, well, at number one was He's So Fine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, we just keep bringing it up. Sorry, George. <laughs> Poor George. At number two was The End of the World. Mm-hmm. At number three was Our Day Will Come. So, you mm-hmm. know, one, two, three. Yep. <laughs> At number 10 was Roy Orbison's In Dreams, which we've also talked of before. At number 23, The Cookies singing a Goffin and King song, one which we know that the Beatles uh, listened to and loved. Don't Say Nothing Bad About My Baby. That's a great song. Don't say nothing bad about my baby. I love this track. I love the sass of it, uh, the lyrics. Martin was talking about sophistication earlier in chord changes. This has got some of that as well. It's got, you know, that honking sax. I mean, just a great record. Goffin King, of course. You can't go wrong with them. Just a fantastic record. And then moving down the charts, uh, at number 68, we had the Exciters. The Exciters were to go on tour with the Beatles in 64. Their big hit was a Libra and Stellar tune called Tell Em. Yep, and this was another one, and it was co-written by Ellie Greenwich, who has quite a track record. Mm-hmm. Uh, she wrote or co-wrote to Do Ron Ron, Be My Baby, Then He Kissed Me, Do Wah Diddy, Christmas Baby Please Come Home, Hanky Panky, Chapel of Love, Leader of the Pack. What a resume. It goes on and on. Now, talking of that 64 tour, every crowd was the biggest crowd. The craziest crowd was in Houston, Texas. Not what she's thinking of. They didn't come to Houston in 64. Uh, (laughs) They were climbing all over the Beatles limousine. They dented the hood and the roof of the car. Unfortunately, a girl in a wheelchair got killed. They had just built this really big, beautiful hotel. The crowd was pushing, and they crushed her and pushed her through the plate glass window. Wow. Boy, that is just a horrific story. I mean, wherever it occurred, man. That was actually Mm. Dallas in 1964. Mal Evans has spoken of that incident. Houston was an awfully crazy place a year later, and it should be noted that they were actually strongly considering coming to Houston on that 64 tour. The place they were going to play was the... Professional baseball stadium, not yet the Astrodome, Colt 45 Stadium, but it didn't come to pass, and we had to wait for another year for that to happen. George kind of also puts those two together because he talks about Dallas 64 and Houston 65 in the same breath. There's a couple of interviews from the Dark Horse Tour where it's like, I remember those two cities, Mm. which he then follows up with, you know, and it's great because I went back to both cities and and everyone was so mellow this time around. So they're kind of the same thing. Yeah, kind of the same thing. So <laughs> We will post the link, but she goes on to talk about when the Beatles were stuck in Key West and the Beatles wanted some actual 
home cooking some fish and chips, and she got her mom in to come in and make some home-cooked meals for the Beatles. Good story. And then at number 93 was Today I Met the Boy I'm Gonna Marry by Darlene Love. You can say it's corny, and but Darlene Love's vocals on this are just so sweet. She was such a good singer, and I mean, she really sells the song. And it's just kind of of the period in a way, too. And of course, a classic Phil Spector production. Just that wall of sound, that great, big, kind of dense, layered sound. But really, to me, Darlene Love is the star. Um, oh, she's special. I mean, you know. She really is. I mean, I just don't think any other singer could have sold this. Any other singer's hands, this could have sounded really corny. and But she just sings it with such conviction and sweetness that it works. Well, and she deserves every bit of credit for the popularity of her Christmas song. I mean, mm-hmm. it's her that makes that thing work. The uh, best thing about the uh, holidays, a visit from our next guest, here now to sing Christmas Baby Please Come Home, our good friend Darlene Love. Let's go! It's her that makes the SNL parody Christmas Time for the Jews work. Funny, but it, it works as a song because there's Darlene Love singing it. Yep. <laughs> One of the greats. And so Darlene Love did actually run across the Beatles. We were talking about uh, Shindig last week. Darlene mm-hmm. Love was also on that show. She described uh, the Beatles as being four of the nicest gentlemen I have ever met. They wanted to hear about my history of being in show business. And then she continued to say that the greatest thing the Beatles ever did was they gave it back, it being the Black Rock influence of Chuck Berry and Little Richard. 
Mm. They told people where they got their music from. They honored us. Mm. Well, which is kind of the same thing we're doing here. Exactly. So. Very true. I have another Darlene love story. I was listening to a biography program, uh, a podcast, around 74, I think it was. Phil Spector had Darlene Love in a studio to do a recording with him. And uh, in the studio, in the actual recording area, was John Lennon sat next to Phil Spector. She was doing this vocal take and she did really well. This wasn't a good period for Phil, was it? Apparently, one of the engineers said that he just said, oh, watch this. And he just pressed the button and says, oh, I think we need to do that again. And he kept doing it loads and loads of times. And eventually... She noticed that they were laughing and she just walked away from the mic and walked out. And that's when she gave up music for a few years. Wow. Jeez. Phil Spector. Phil Spector. <laughs> Phil Spector. What can you say? <laughs> then at number 99 was the Beach Boys was shut down. It happened on the strip where the road is wide. Cool shorts standing side by side. That's actually an underrated Beach Boys song, I think. I've got to admit something embarrassing. I did not know until we were preparing for the show that that's what the song was called. Was shut down. <laughs> really? I mean, everybody knows the song, but everybody, I knew the song. I mean, you know, and and when we were preparing for this, and I saw shut, I was like, shut down. I've never. What's this? I, I mean, I thought I knew all the Beach Boys hits, and then of course when I played, I'm like, oh. I know this, but I never knew it was called Shut Down. So I, you learn something new every day. <laughs> we move on to the next week, April the 13th. As we were discussing, there really were little bits and pieces about the Beatles starting to show up in Cashbox. You go through the April 13th issue, we got a couple stories about them. The first is that manager Brian Epstein and the Beatles, in association with publisher Dick James, have formed a new company, Northern Songs Limited, April 13th of 1963, it's being reported in the USA. The Beatles, wow. as well as being vocalists and instrumentalists, are also songwriters and pen much of their own material, including their latest Parlophone single, For Me to You. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay, maybe they really were just starting to bubble under, and maybe Sid Bernstein, who was reading Cashbox and reading Every page of Catchbox, not doing what I did, do a find and search for Beatles in the issue, you know. But he says he was starting to hear about them. Well, there were these stories about them starting to pop up. That's interesting. That early in, in America that there were some more articles starting to pop up here and there. And then as we were discussing, the editorial at the front of the issue says, what this industry needs is a little positive thinking, and some exciting new releases that may very well be on the cutting board at this very moment are the things that will carry the industry to still greater heights in 1963 out there right now. Well, mm-hmm. yeah, but they're on across the pond right now. You're just not looking for them. <laughs> That's right. Little did we know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. At number 78, there's our man, Ray Charles, Atlantic Records. Take these chains from my heart. Mm-hmm. A great record. Take these chains from my heart and set me free. You've grown cold and no longer 
anger on Take these chains from my heart And set me free Hank Williams originally recorded this, did not write it, but he recorded it was what during his final recording session, in fact. And this comes from one of Ray Charles' most important albums, Modern Sounds and Country and Western Music. This was actually volume two, one of Ray Charles' most successful, just an important record in crossover country. Terrific, terrific record. Just fantastic. Kit, do you think this album then was like a signpost for country artists to come? where they could start crossing over other genres with country to try and spread it out there a bit more? I think it was definitely another, I don't think it was the first, but I think it definitely was a sign of things to come. I think it was a further step in spreading country to wider audiences. And certainly in Ray Charles' case, it was crossing over to African-American audiences. But I think it definitely was another step in not just having country on, probably was still called country western charts back then. They might have even still been the hillbilly charts at that point. Yeah, may have been. I forget when they stopped calling it that, but I think this was another major landmark. And I know Willie Nelson, I saw a quote from him that talked about what an important record this was in bringing country to a much wider audience. And then, so yeah, I think it did. Well, and then uh, Ray Charles later recorded with Willie Nelson and started collaborating with other artists. So I think it did open the door to country artists starting to collaborate with artists outside of the country genre. And, uh, you know, last time we were talking about the Nashville sound, that Mm -hmm. was built for crossovers. And of course, talking about Willie Nelson, you know, Crazy was out there and that's a Willie Nelson song. Yeah, Patsy Klein. So absolutely. Well, yeah. he wrote a lot for Patsy, didn't he? Well, he did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. At number ninety, Martha Reeves and the Vandellas with "Come and Get These Memories." is an important record in Motown history because it was the first hit that was written and produced by the legendary songwriting production team of Holland Dozier Holland. Mm-hmm. Um, and they would, of course, become a huge force at Motown by the end of 65. This was the first of several hits they would write and produce for Martha Reeves and the Vandellas before they would go on to work heavily for the Supremes and the Four Tops. But this was Martha and the Vandellas' first hit, but it was also Alan Dozier Allen's first. And uh, as we know, Motown greatly influenced the Beatles. Paul would even include Heat Wave, which is quite possibly Martha Reeves' biggest hit on the four-copy Christmas disc, which we have since gotten a bootleg of. Mm-hmm. That's just, right. So that tells you just how much Paul thought of that record. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And as I said, uh, Holland Dozier Holland, I am sure influenced Paul and John in their songwriting because who didn't they influence? <laughs> I mean, you know, the, about how to write a hit. 
Another great bass line from James Jameson as well on this. Good call. Absolutely. The legendary James Jamerson, the Funk Brothers in general, just stellar musicians. At number 94, call me irresponsible, the chairman of the board himself. One of his classics, you know, one of his standards, and it's a great song. There's some controversy, apparently, as to who this was originally written for. Uh, Mel Torme, in his book, The Other Side of the Rainbow, with Judy Garland on uh, the Dawn Patrol, he claimed that Jimmy Van Hoosen and Sammy Kahn had originally written it for her uh, to sing mm-hmm. on the Judy Garland show. And even the lyrics were kind of a wink at her well-known problems. Call me irresponsible. But that was later refuted by... Sammy Kahn himself, that he had originally written it for Fred Astaire right. um, to sing in the film Papa's Delicate Condition, which I don't remember. And that's because I'm just looking at my notes. It never happened. Uh, he was supposed to star in it, but then the film never happened. Oh, but then the role went to Jackie Gleason. So he ended up starring in it and he introduced the song and it won the Academy Award for Best Original Song at the 36th Academy Awards in 1964. So there you go. Well, I certainly wouldn't call Frank Sinatra irresponsible, just in case any of his friends appeared. <laughs> the week of April 20th, again, there's a little piece about the Beatles receiving a uh, silver disc for Please Please Me. Mm-hmm. The news keeps on popping. The editorial at the front is talking about on-disc rebels. The reward for a hit exception disc can be great. It establishes new stars, new sounds, and new ideas. Again... You weren't looking very hard, were you? Just had to look across the pond, as you said. (laughs) All right. The new songs on the chart, Another Saturday Night by Sam Cooke, a record for the ages. Classic. Absolutely classic. Come on. Found out Hal Blaine played drums on this. Right. Sam Cooke, one of the best singers of all time. What can you say? At number 71, the Four Seasons cover of Ain't That a Shame. There's a miss. Never heard this before. And it's definitely the Four Seasons making Ain't That a Shame a Four Seasons song. <laughs> it does not work. No. I just wrote in my notes, interesting. You're a lot kinder than me. At number 77, Etta James with Pushover. It's an okay record. All of the girls think you fine. They even call you Romeo. a lot better than Ain't That a Shame by the Four Seasons. (laughs) This was in a time when she was adding 
more gospel elements to her singing. You could hear it a bit, but this was a decent hit for her pushover. Not on the level of at last, obviously. It definitely shows her singing skills. And interestingly, it was co-written by a name that came up many times when I was teaching my Motown class, a writer named Billy Davis, who before Barry Gordy founded Motown, they wrote songs together, including some of Jackie Wilson's biggest hits, Lonely Teardrops, Reek Petite, and Billy Davis was dating Barry Gordy's sister. And they founded Anna Records, which was the distributor of Barry Gordy's newly formed Tamla label which became Motown. Even when we're not talking about the Beatles, it all comes together. It all comes together. Just just a little aside there. I had to show other connections. We bring up a song that we mentioned not for the song. Uh, it's Joey D and the Starlighters, Hot Pastrami and Mashed Potatoes. Uh, okay. It's an okay song. I, I, have, I have no comment on it. I love that. Okay. <laughs> Mashed Potatoes, yeah. I'm hungry. <laughs> <laughs> Joey D and the Starlighters are best known for continuing the twist craze. Peppermint Twist is good. I, I like that one. That was fun. They're the two stories that Joey D has is that the Beatles opened for us and Jimi Hendrix played with us. In his pre-Monkey's days, Jimi Hendrix was briefly with Joey D and the Starlighters. The song itself? Instrumental. You know, it's, it's, you know, it's fun. You, know, you can dance to it. <laughs> But yeah, October the 26th, uh, the Beatles in Sweden, and in what was really amongst their first big trips, non-Germany trips abroad. You know, you look at the poster, they were co-headliners. I was going to say, they were on the same bill. I, w I don't know if I'd say opening act. <laughs> That's a bit of a stretch. Joey D has a photo of, of the Beatles and Paul in particular pointing at this poster. It's going, you know, what's going on here? <laughs> They got the show poster, they've got uh, Joey D. Comer right next to it, and then underneath they have the Beatles, the, the famous uh, sitting around the chair poster. Oh, yeah. So. Gotcha. Okay, at number 98 was uh, Shame, Shame, Shame by Jimmy Reed. Jimmy Reed is a fascinating artist. He influenced a number of artists, including the Rolling Stones. And Bob Dylan, on his last album that came out in 2020, Rough and Rowdy Ways, did a song called Goodbye Jimmy Reed. He was a bluesman, and but it, it wasn't exactly Mississippi Delta kind of stuff. It was electric blues, but it was a bit more accessible. He was popular with both blues and non-blues fans. And he influenced Elvis Rolling Stones, apparently, you know, there are country artists who are fans. And this song, Shame, 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 is a good example of that. It's really good. I mean, it demonstrates his vocal style. And it's just interesting. You can really hear, I think, his influence on some of the Rolling Stones' early stuff. Well, Shame, 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 
many Beatles influences secondhand, I think. You know, they yeah. might have picked up something through somebody else, but I can't say they weren't listening to records like this, but it's less upfront for sure. Exactly. But the Stones, yes, you can definitely hear their influence on them. But yeah, very interesting. Another kind of early influence on rock and roll. If anyone's Uh, interested, there's a really great cover version of it by Brian Ferry on his 1976 album, Let's Stick Together. Oh. And then at number 100, uh, The Do Ron Ron by The Crystals, uh, produced by one Phil Spector. That's certainly a song that George loved. George and Bob Dylan keep breaking into it during their sessions in It's a classic example of Phil Spector's production style and and that, you know, the wall of sound. I love that the title was initially kind of a dummy line to separate the stanza and chorus until proper lyrics could be written. But apparently Spector liked it so much that he was like, no, no, let's keep it. That's catchy. He didn't want lyrics that were too brainy and, you know, would interfere with the simple boy meets girl. And it works. And Sean Cassidy would bring it back many years later. Oh, yes. I remember. (laughs) Also from that week, songs that we mentioned in in other contexts, El Watusi at Solomon Burke's If You Need Me and Mm -hmm. Hello Stranger from Barbara Lewis. We will mention that again because there is at least a tenuous Beatles connection. Barbara Lewis's other big hit was Baby I'm Yours, a song Mm -hmm. which... Peter and Gordon would cover for their Lady Godiva album. Baby, I'm yours. Baby, I'm yours. And I'll be yours until two and two is three. You're yours until the mountain crumbles to the sea. In other words, until eternity. Yes, indeed. And Hello, Stranger is just a classic soul song, and Barbara Lewis wrote it. And by the way, Baby, I'm Yours was written by Van McCoy. Yes, Van McCoy of The Hustle. Wow. (laughs) Everything comes around. (laughs) All right. And then for the last week of April, April the 27th, not a whole lot new on the charts, but at number 79, we did get Prisoner of Love by James Brown and the famous line, a great James Brown track. Yeah. It is, and this was his first top 20 pop hit. So this is a big record in James Brown history here. It would eventually reach, you know, it's not there yet, obviously, but it would reach ultimately number 18 on the pop charts. So this was his first really big hit. And he would also perform it later on the famous Tammy show. Great record and uh, would definitely set him on his path to stardom. 
All right, and then we, we will close out this week with a, a song dedicated to Al Sussman. At number 100, <laughs> Rick Nelson with Old Enough to Love. Higher than the mountains, taller than the trees, bigger than the moon above, deeper than the seas. Oh, that's how I feel. Now my love is real. Yeah. I'm old enough to love. Yeah, there's another one from, from Rick Nelson. He's there on the charts. It's definitely country-leaning, and that's not surprising because the songwriters are not well-known, I don't think, but they're country artists. So that makes sense. Definitely fits in with kind of his you know, sort of dreamy, image of the time the teen idol though he might have been transitioning out of that teen idol well we we, you know we just mentioned sean cassidy it's sean cassidy a decade earlier yeah i mean a bit like that a bit like although i'd say more a bit more i'm sorry sean cassidy fans a bit more talented (laughs) uh so so let's see i ticked off billy fury fans so now i'm gonna tick off sean cassidy fans so (laughs) yay they all go together in that big pot of teen idol so all right that is April of 1963. The winner is certainly for me to you. <laughs> Debuting at number 23, shooting up the charts, sitting there right at the top. And then the second big winner is Brian Epstein. That's right. Any last words on April of 1963? Well, I think that, you know, we're still seeing, even though we're now seeing even more of the British invasion, you know, start to come in, we're still seeing. You know, that variety, instrumentals, the Latin songs, R&B, you know, we're, we're still seeing that variety there. Well, um, and, and, and as much as we mentioned it, the British invasion really wouldn't quash that. It would just take over. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so, you know, so we're still seeing that variety. It'll be interesting to see as we go into May um, how this is going to change next month. We got a couple months before the next Beatles record comes out. We don't get She Loves You until late in the summer, so we'll have to find some other things to talk about in the next few months. Martin? I was going to say that the songwriting has shown that, you know, they've got that growth, as I mentioned earlier on. Certainly. For the Beatles, that's as good a way to close the show as any. For me, you really was a step forward, and they absolutely did the right thing by not issuing Thank You Girl as a single. Although, you know, I think Thank You Girl would have been a hit. Yeah, I think so. But yeah, definitely for me to you, it just was more memorable in many ways. It's all about that bridge. <laughs> it is. All right, so we will talk to you next month. Bye. Take care. There was a piece in the NME, a news piece, that said the Top Rank Records, remember when Top Rank had a record label? Yeah, they introduced an LP series next week that will be called Toppermost. And it's coinciding with their current advertising slogan, Toppermost of the Poppermost. Yes, I thought, they got it from somewhere. They saw that, they must have seen that in either the NME or Record Mirror or Disc, Record and Show Mirror as it was then. And they've taken it from there. They've obviously thought how stupid that is.
how stupid is it's one of those phrases that someone an older person who doesn't understand teenagers comes up with a slogan that they think is going to be the hip slogan of the month top of most of the poppermost 